Bibles now, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3, third chapter of Philippians. Let me ask you a question. How many have ever been to what we call an old-fashioned testimony meeting? Few of you have. Back in Kentucky, we used to have those um, quite, you know, not real often, but, but we would do it every now and then. And this is where we would get a group of people in church together, call a meeting, and we'd have prayer, and we'd have some singing. And then one by one, uh, different men in the church would get up and they'd give their testimonies. And they would just talk about how they came to know the Lord, uh, their experience in, in salvation. And all of those testimonies were, were usually very good. Uh, some of them were a little more interesting than others. But I remember that we had a man in our church who was in his early 20s. And before he became a Christian, he was, he was just one of the roughest characters that you could ever meet. He was a hard drinker. Uh, he ran around with women. He was in fights all of the time. He hung out in the bars. He was a brusque, just a burly man, a, a really an all-around tough guy, and just somebody that you just did not want to mess with. And if you'd known this man before he was saved, uh, first thing you would think, you don't want to cross him. He's not the kind of person you want to meet in a dark alley or anything like that. But you would never imagine that in a million years that this man could give a testimony and he'd be so broken that tears would come into his eyes and he would just hardly be able to talk as he gave his testimony. You could just really feel the love of the Lord in his heart. This man became a Christian and when Christ saved him, he just completely transformed him. He began to work in uh, our bus ministry, and he was very, very good at that. Uh, he was just—he really loved doing it. Uh, he, right after a bus was turned over to him, in a very short amount of time, he'd filled that bus up and was bringing children into church every Sunday morning. But not only just bringing them into church, but these children that he brought in—they just really loved him. And it wasn't uncommon that you would see him. On, on Saturday afternoons as he was visiting different uh, families on his bus route, that there'd be just kids falling all around behind him and some of them hanging off of him. And, and they just really genuinely loved him. But this hardened man just became so gentle after the Lord saved him. And even today, and I'm talking now, this happened, oh, 35, 35 40 years ago now. I, don't, I am that old, believe it or not. And... Uh, uh, even today, I mean, he's still living. When we go back to Kentucky and I get to see him, he still comes up to me and he'll, he'll pat me on the back and tears will come to his eyes. He'll talk about those good old days back when he was able to drive the bus route. My dad was uh, still preaching. And I remember that one of the things that he would do at every, every service, he never missed a service, but every service he came and he put a tape recorder right up here on the pulpit and he recorded his own copies of the messages. And he had 30 years, more than 30 years, of my dad's sermons. And he would listen to those over and over and over again, and he still listens to them today. And so it was just a remarkable transformation that took place in his life, that when God saved him, it just completely turned him inside out and made him completely new again. Well, in these verses that we're going to read tonight, Paul is giving a testimony. And he recalls what it was like before Christ saved him. But there's a big difference in Paul and the man that I was just talking about. When Paul began to give his testimony, he would not be able to talk about all the immorality of his life. Because Paul was not that man. Paul was a very religious person. And so when he began to talk about his testimony, it wasn't the immoral things, but he could talk to you about the sins of religion. 
He was a good moral man. He had all the advantages that you would think that would commend him to God. And yet the reality of it was his heart was just as dark as that man I was describing just a moment ago. We're going to read a little bit about this tonight. If you'd stand with me, please, as we look in Philippians chapter 3. I want to start reading in verse number 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have to spend together tonight. Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to look into the heart of the Apostle Paul and see the things that he was counting as gains in his life. And then, Lord, may we learn something from him about what is the true gain. And we just ask you, Lord, to bless this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've titled the message tonight, The Christian P&L Statement. Now, most of you probably know what a P&L statement is, but if you don't, I'll just explain that, that a P&L statement stands for profit and loss statement. And uh, if you've ever been in a business or if you've uh, been in a place where you had to ever figure up your income and your expenses, what you would do is you'd list those on a P&L statement. You put the income on the profit side, you put the expenses on the loss side, then you, ex- you subtract the expenses from the profits, and the bottom line is how well you've done in your business or how well you've done with your finances. Now, unfortunately, there are many people who think that that's the way that you reckon things in spiritual matters. You list all of the good things, and those go over on one side. That's all the gains that you have. And then uh, those are all the things that will help you to get into heaven. Then you list all the bad things, and you put those over on the lost side, and those are all the things that will keep you out of heaven. Then you subtract the lost side from the expense side or the good side, the gain side, and if your good deeds and all the things that you've done in your life have outweighed all the bad things that you've done in your life, then you're okay. You're going to get into heaven. But if you, if you don't, if you end up in the negative side, the bad things are worse than the good things, and you end up with a negative number there, then hold on to your hat because you are never going to get there. Well, in these scriptures, Paul lists his assets, or he lists his gains before he became a Christian. And strangely enough, the things that he considered to be the gains before he was saved actually turned out to be his liabilities. And so he dismissed all of those former assets that he had. He counted them as nothing, and he listed only one asset that counted, and that was to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Now, tonight I want to talk to you about Paul's P&L. He had some great assets, at least as far as the world would look. So let's look, at, first of all, tonight we're going to look at the asset side or the profit side of Paul's life. And I'm calling these this evening the assets that deceive. Before Paul was saved, 
He was just like a lot of people who thought that the good things that they do need to outweigh those bad. And he believed that salvation was found in doing good things. In other words, his confidence was in his flesh. He was looking to himself, what he could do. And he says in verse number 4, if there's any person, that there is, any person that he could talk to who had reason to trust in the flesh for his salvation, Paul would be that man. His flesh was absolutely stellar. He would put himself up against the claims of anyone. He said, if there's any man who thinks that you have a reason to trust his flesh, I have a better reason than anybody. If there's anybody who could be saved by the things that they've done, if anybody can be saved by personal effort, Paul said, I am that man. Now, next week, we're going to talk about why that doesn't work, and we're going to learn uh, two weeks, actually, and we're going to learn uh, a little bit more about why Paul had to shift all of these things over onto the lost side. But what was it? I mean, what was it in Paul's life that looked so positive that he counted to be so good that he said, these are gains? These were the gains that I thought that I had before I knew Christ. Well, first of all, Paul counted the ceremonies. In verse number 5, he speaks of circumcision. Now, you may remember that scathing rebuke that Paul makes in verse number 2. He's talking about the Judaizers, and he talks about them being mutilators. He said, you're of the concision. And what he's talking about there, he says, you are mutilators of the flesh because you practice circumcision. And he had really nothing but contempt for those people because what they had done, they had mixed this rite, this ritual of circumcision, in with the grace of God, and they thought that you had to combine those things in order for a person to be saved. And yet, before Paul was saved, that is the very thing that he was looking to. That was one of his greatest assets. It was his circumcision. It was the ceremony that was performed upon him, and he counted that as a valuable asset. Now, it's not just that he was circumcised, but he's better than these people that he's talking about in verse number 2. He's better than the Judaizers because he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And that means that he came into the very beginning, at the very earliest point that the law said that you could come into the covenant community of God. The eighth day, that's when you're circumcised. That's when the male child is brought into that covenant with God. And Paul says, I came in at exactly the right time. My parents didn't take me too early. They abided by the law. They didn't take me too late. But on that very day, when I was eight days old, they took me and I was circumcised and I came into the commonwealth of Israel. Now, the importance of bringing that up is to say that he's not a Jewish proselyte. He's not somebody who came to the Jewish faith late in life. He's not a converted Jew. He's not like many of the ones that he's been addressing here, but rather he came in under the letter of the law at the very earliest point possible. So that asset was the ritual. His ritual is what he counted as a gain. He'd done it precisely as the law had demanded. And so Paul put that over in the plus column. You know, Paul's not alone in that. He wasn't alone in it then, and he's not alone in it now. Because there are a lot of people who want to put their rituals into the plus column. There are some people who put faith in the fact that they were baptized as a baby, or perhaps that they went through a confirmation process as they were growing up, and so they've counted that on the asset side, on the good side. That's a profit, that's a gain to them, and they think that's the way that they're going to get into heaven. Some of them are counting on the number of times that they've been through the rosary and they've fingered the beads and they've said their Hail Marys and their Our Fathers. They've been through all the rituals and they put it into the asset column and that's what they're counting on. That's what they think is going to help them get to heaven. That helps them to be saved. 
But friends, all of the rituals, all the ceremonies that you can go through are nothing but deceiving assets. Now, baptism performed scripturally at the right time, that's a wonderful act of obedience. But whenever a person begins to look at the act of baptism itself and looks at the ceremony of baptism, rather than what that baptism represents, which is faith in Jesus Christ, he's been deceived by the asset. And that's what Paul was doing. A lot of people do this. They put the ceremonies and the rituals over on the plus side and they count that as a way that they're going to get to heaven. Then Paul lists something else. The second thing that he lists on his plus side and the prophet side is his descent. In the asset column, he puts his descent. He says, I'm of the stock of Israel. Now, many of these people that he's speaking to are Gentile converts. And, of course, the Gentiles, uh, they had been brought into the covenant of God, but they had been grafted in. Now, if you remember, back in the book of Romans, Paul talked about this, and he referred to the Gentiles as the wild olive tree. And he said, they're just like a branch that's been broken off and then gra- grafted into the good tree. And, and he says, that's what the Gentiles are. They're not the original stock. They've been granted, grafted into the tree. But that's not Paul's ancestry. Paul traces his all the way back to Jacob. He's not a proselyte. There are no grafts in his family tree. Paul held up that ancestry, and he says, I go all the way back to Jacob. I go all the way back to, to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. I'm of the original covenant people of God. I was not added in. And that's the same as saying that he had all the advantages that any Jew could have. And that's one of the things he said about Jews. He said, they have an advantage because unto them has been committed the oracles of God. But there are a lot of people today that are doing the same thing. They're looking at their descent. Some count it as an asset that they've been born into the right family. They've been born socially high up, socially acceptable. They're well healed. And so they think that because of their, their, their family that they've been born into socially acceptable, that somehow God is also going to accept them. And then there's some people who try to trade on the faith of family. Grandpa was a preacher. Sweet mama, she prayed every night before she went to bed and she read her Bible. You know, I can't tell you the number of times that I've talked to people and I've heard those very same things. When you ask these people, are you a Christian? What they do is they deflect the question. And they talk about not their personal faith, not what they have believed, but they talk about the faith of someone else. This is what mom did. This is what dad did. This is what my relatives do. This is what grandpa did. And somehow they think that all of these relatives have some kind of pull with God. And so that makes them a Christian too. Well, it's a wonderful asset if you've got a good godly a family that you've come from, that's a wonderful thing. But if that's the thing you're trusting in, that is an asset that deceives. Salvation is not dependent upon the faith of anyone else. The faith of somebody else does not help you. It doesn't count for you. And it doesn't matter how sincerely that you believe it or how sincerely they believe it. The faith of someone else is not going to help you. And you know, that counts or that's true, rather, I should say, for those that are living and those that are also dead. Because there are some people that not only count on living faith of someone else, they think that it's possible that faith and works can be done for somebody who's dead. People believe that. Now, you might think it's a little bit strange, but, but one of the things that I like to do when I'm traveling, I, I like to just look at churches. 
I like to go in church buildings. I mean, for some reason, I'm just attracted to church buildings. And uh, sometimes uh, when, when we're on vacation, I can just stop at a church, walk up to the church and shake the door and see if it's open and walk in and just have a look around. I'm kind of interested in churches. If you've uh, ever been to Europe, I mean, just about everybody that goes there, they put it on their list, uh, on their itinerary to visit some of the historic churches there. I like to do that. I like to go to these old missions that we have here in California, especially like the one that's down in Santa Barbara. It's a, a very beautiful place, and I love to go visit there and to look at that. A few years ago, my wife and I uh, drove out of our way to go down to uh, Fort Hunter Liggett, just uh, a little ways out of, of King City. And there we went to uh, one, a mission there, San Antonio to Padua. Uh, Padua. And uh, I really like that. I mean, I just like to visit those kinds of places. I've been in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. I've been to St. Mark's Cathedral in Vienna. I've been to churches in Switzerland and France and Germany. And a few years ago, I was in uh, Edmonston, New Brunswick, and I stopped there, and I went up and went into a church there. I just like to go into churches, and I'm particularly interested, for some reason, in going into Roman Catholic churches. I've been into a lot of those. Now, I get cold chills when I go in there. Uh, you know, the beauty of the buildings, I get cold chills, but more, perhaps more getting cold chills that way, I get cold chills because I can just feel the devil's walking in right beside me when I go in there. You know, it's better to feel that the Lord's walking beside you, but I can walk into a place like that, I can see all that goes on, I can see all those candles that are burning there that are lit for the dead, and I just feel like, I just feel like the devil's right there. And you know that the Roman Catholic Church has no problem at all admitting the history of where all of that came from, lighting candles from the dead. I mean, in their own encyclopedia, they'll tell you that was a pagan practice that they borrowed and it was that people asked favors for the dead or a blessing upon the dead and they burned candles for it. And did you know this, that, that in their practice of lighting candles for the liturgy, that those candles have to be made out of beeswax because beeswax, they say, somehow represents the flesh of Jesus Christ. Now, you can understand why I get cold chills when I go into a place like that. I mean, it's, it's almost a frightening thing. But that's what the devil does. What he likes to do, he likes this whole hocus-pocus thing that goes on. He tries to divert faith away from Jesus Christ and to put into all these other things but him. So your descent, your family, your living, your dead relatives, they have no bearing at all upon your salvation. And that is the very kind of thing that Paul listed as an asset. He said, I had all these things before I came to faith in Christ. Now, I hope some of you here, you don't uh, go decide to decide to go visit a Roman Catholic church to see what I'm talking about. Uh, that's only for trained professionals, so don't try that. The third thing, the third thing that Paul lists on the gain side was his status. Next, Paul looks at status. Where does Paul rank with this whole nation of Jews that are all making similar claims to him? Well, he drills it down to his tribe. You see, he's not just an Israelite. There are 12 tribes of Israel, but all the tribes of Israel are not created equal. As we all know, the 12 tribes are the 12 sons of Jacob. But there were 10 of those sons of Jacob that were born to wives that, that Jacob really didn't love. When Jacob was looking for a wife, he met Rachel. And Rachel was the one that he wanted to marry. But when it came time to marry her... Uh, his father-in-law Laban deceived him, and instead of giving Rachel to Jacob as his wife, he gave him her sister Leah instead. 
Well, Jacob didn't love Leah. He still loved Rachel. And so in, in this transaction, uh, Jacob agreed to work seven more years in order to get Rachel at his, as his wife. Well, in, in that part of the bargain, he got Rachel up front. I mean, he didn't have to wait another seven years to get her. So at the end of the seven years, he ends up in his married life. He starts out his married life with two wives. We had a hard enough time, just two of us, but having a third one in there, that would have been really difficult. But he starts out with two wives, one he loves and one he doesn't love. And there was a lot of jealousy between them. Go figure that out. I mean, why? Of course, there's going to be a lot of jealousy. Well, what Leah did, she thought that she could gain favor with Jacob because Rachel couldn't conceive. And so Leah kept having children. She thought, well, if I keep having children, then Jacob will love me. But it never worked out that way. Jacob didn't love her. So in this, this, this going back and forth between these wives of Jacob, Jacob ended up with four wives and 13 children. But he only had two children of the wife that he loved. That was from Rachel. There were only two children. That was Benjamin and Joseph, and those he loved better than anybody else that was in his family. Now, in fact, the tribe of Benjamin is what uh, Paul is talking about here. This is why he's making the statement. He's not like the majority of Israel. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. He comes from one that was a favorite son of Jacob. And then in addition to that, when the kingdom was split and when uh, the kingdom was divided between the northern and southern tribes, the ten tribes became Israel, the southern tribes became Judah. The two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, were the ones that remained faithful to the Lord longer. Those ten tribes, they, they intermarried. They mixed it up with the Assyrians and other peoples that had conquered them. They intermarried and they lost their identity to a large extent. And Paul says, that's not me. He says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm from one of the favored tribes of Israel. So all of those other tribes, they've been assimilated. They've lost their identity, but not me. And you can see how this plays out in the New Testament times that the Jews of, 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 of Judah and Benjamin, the ones that lived in Jerusalem, they were very suspect and they hated Samaritans. Samaritans were ones who had intermarried. They were products of that intermarriage between Israelites and, and the Assyrians. And so the Jews hated them so much, the people in Judah and Benjamin hated them so much that when a Jew was traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee or vice versa, they would detour all the way to the eastern side of the Jordan River to a more difficult, longer route just so they wouldn't have to step foot in the country of Samaria and encounter Samaritans. Paul says, I'm not like that. He said, I'm a Benjamite. I'm not like Samaritans. I'm not like these others that were intermarried. He said, I'm a pure blood. I'm from the favored tribe of Israel. The only one that's left from the favored wife, Rachel. Because even Jacob's, or excuse me, Joseph's descendants, even they had been scattered to the wind. It was only the tribe of Benjamin that remained faithful. That was one of Jacob's favorite sons. Even Judah couldn't claim that. I mean, the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, yet Benjamin was the favored one. Judah could not claim favoritism from Jacob. Now, let me add another piece concerning this status, and we can pick this up from John chapter 4. I want you to turn there for just a minute. John chapter 4, and this is Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. And uh, this woman at the well was the woman of Sychar. She was a Samaritan, and she and Jesus were discussing worship. Now, this was after that whole uh, discussion about living water. Then they moved on to the subject of worship. But look at John 4, verse number 19. The woman saith unto him, 
Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now the mountain that this woman was referring to is Mount Gerizim. And on Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans had built an altar there, and that's where they worshipped. Well, that was strictly against the commandments of God. God said there's only one place that you can worship, that's in Jerusalem. You have to worship at the temple. So it didn't make any difference where you lived in Israel. If you were coming to worship God, you had to go down to Jerusalem, and there at the temple, that's where the sacrifices were made, that's where all the worship of God was carried out. So everybody in Israel, they went down to Jerusalem. Now, Paul accentuates this point because he's saying he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is in a territory that's close to Jerusalem. And so by extension, Paul is saying, I'm closest to the place of worship. I'm different from all these other Jews out there. Even though that he was born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet by extension, by being of the tribe of Benjamin, he was from the people that were closest to the place of worship. Now, these are all things that Paul is piling up for his status. It's like his BMW or the Mercedes of Israel. He knows what tribe he's from. Most of the Jews didn't know at that time because of all the intermarriages. And so on the asset side, Paul lists that as one of his gains. He has the status. He has the rank. He stands at the top of the heap of all these other people. Well, how foolish it was for him to count on those things because you remember when Jesus came one of the things that he did was to avoid the people of status. You remember when that rich young ruler came to him? Jesus nailed him right in the very beginning over the issue of status. He was a rich man, and he talked about all, that, all the good things that he had done. What, but Jesus started out very simply with him. He didn't talk about repentance. He didn't talk about faith. He didn't talk about going to heaven. He didn't talk about any of that stuff. He just said, take all you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. He was attacking him on the issue of status because he knew if this man was not willing to forsake his status and give that up for him, there's no point talking about repentance and faith and all these other things. If he's not going to give up his status, he's not ready to be saved. He's depending upon something else. And so when that man walked away, sorrowing because he was rich, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, How hardly are those that are rich going to enter into the kingdom of God? Now, Paul's not really trading on material wealth, but what he is doing, and he may have been a wealthy man, but what he is doing, he's trying to trade on the wealth of his heritage. And that sentiment is expressed there in verse number 5 when he says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he has the ceremonies, he has the descent, he's from the right tribe, he has the status, but he doesn't have anything yet that impresses God. But he's not through yet. I mean, those first areas can concern what he gained by inheritance. Now, you can take your profit and loss sheet or take your balance sheet, and you can list all of the gains that you have. And if you receive something by inheritance, that's fine. That's a gain. Put it down. That counts as a plus. And so that's what he did. He puts down all the things that he gained by inheritance. But he moves on from that because that's not all. I mean, he, he had these things from his birth. They, they didn't require any input on his part. 
He was born into the right family. His parents took him to be circumcised. He was in the right tribe. None of that's his doing. He just, that just falls out to him by the luck of the draw, we might say. So he has all those things, but he has no input into that. But now Paul wants to go on because he's concerned about his direct efforts. He put something into this, and now he's going to show, well, if there's anybody who says they put something into their religion, they have their efforts to go into their religion, I can say I've got that too. And if I should be able to, uh, if anybody's going to be saved by those things, I'm the person that can be saved by those things. So he goes on. What's the next thing he lists? He lists his devotion. He's devoted to his religion. He says it's touching the law of Pharisee. You know, there's some people who get into religion and they're just peripheral adherents. They don't really break into the inner circle. Uh, they don't really get into to doing anything. They just like to sit and watch. They like to come and be counted among the group, but they're really not going to get too involved. That's not Paul. He is involved. He's not content to be an outsider. Here's a man that wants to get in on the action. Uh, the most pious, self-righteous, holy, consecrated, and probably a little bit constipated too were the Pharisees. You know, there's some discussion about where the term Pharisee comes from, but most people are, are generally agreed that it comes from the word separated. The Pharisees were separated. They were distinguishable from all the other Jews because of the strict obedience that they had to the law. Now, I don't think there's any need for me to explain Phariseeism to you because most of you know it, you've heard it. But sadly, Phariseeism is alive and well today. Still being taught in some churches. Some churches are very strict in their adherence to rules. We had a, a, a man and his wife that visited us for quite some time coming here to church, and they were, they were used to attend a, a, a Nazarene church. And one of the things that he told me, he said, I finally, I mean, he, he got high up in the Nazarene church, and he finally said, I had to give all of that up, I had to get away from it. He said, we had a book of rules that was that thick that we had to keep. I had to know all of those. And I said, that's not, that's not it. And so he, he stepped away from that and became a Baptist. But this is the way Paul was. He was, if anybody was going to keep rules, he was the man. He knew how to keep rules. Kept rules and more besides. He kept the laws better than anybody kept them. And he added that as a, he added in a superlative to his service. I want you to listen to what he says when he's talking to King Agrippa. He says, my manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, Jerusalem, know all the Jews which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Most straightest, he says. Now, that's not very good English, but it does fit Paul's superlative when he thinks about himself and the value of what he had done. I mean, he wasn't just a regular Pharisee. He wasn't one who picked up his religion in bits and pieces. He's educated this way. And so he says in Acts 22, I am verily a man which am of Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city, meaning Jerusalem, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. So here is Paul. He's a student of the highest rabbi that's in Israel. He studied at the feet of one who is an expert in the Mosaic law. Somebody who knows all the nitpicky little things about the Pharisees' traditions and how they'd taken all these oral traditions and, and they formed a, 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 a book called the Mishnah and they took all of their, everything that they did, their oral traditions, and put them down there and said, these are the things that we need to do. 
And so he was devoted to that religion, just as devoted as anybody could possibly be. And to him, that devotion to his religion was an asset. So he listed that in his favor. You know, one of the biggest lies that the devil tells people is about sincerity in religion. The Bible just says, or uh, Satan just says, if you will just be sincere in your religion, that's going to be good enough. And so there are many people who believe that Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, a whole bunch of them are going to be to heaven if they're sincere in what they believe. I had a very good friend a few years ago that was a a Christian, supposed to be a Christian. And and this person argued with me all the time that if they're sincere, they have to go to heaven. If they're sincere in what they believe. You know, Mother Teresa, who is revered by Roman Catholics and many others, they put her on the fast track to sainthood. But did you know that she believed that Jesus Christ is only one of the ways that you can get to heaven? She worked among, in India, among the poor people there. It didn't make any difference whether you were a Christian or not. It's just one of the ways that you can get to heaven. Clark Pinnock, who is supposedly an orthodox evangelical Christian theologian, let me read to you what he said. Buddhism, as an objective world religion, has a worldview and an approach to life which is not the same as the Christian approach. The Buddhist and Christian paths are different paths. But this does not tell us whether or not there is fear of God in the context of Buddhism. We must not conclude, just because we know a person to be a Buddhist, that his or her heart is not seeking God. What God really cares about is faith, and not theology, trust, and not orthodoxy. And so that is essentially saying, it doesn't matter what you believe in, doesn't matter what faith is in, it just has to be a strong faith. If you're sincere, then you have found a path to God. And so you're the content of your faith is totally inconsequential. And, and basically, many people who call themselves Christians say the same thing. They are sincere. They are devoted to something. They really do believe it. But it's totally false and unbiblical. And it avails no more for them than Phariseeism did for Paul. And you know anybody who says any differently would be able to say to the Apostle Paul, Paul, why are you writing these things? Why are you talking about your devotion to Phariseeism? Why are you talking about why are you talking about Christ at all? You're good enough just the way that you are. You are so sincere. You trust God. You believe God. Why are you worried about Jesus Christ? You're okay the way that you are. And so when Osteen says that the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses and the cults and all others who do not believe in the Christ of the Bible can go to heaven, he's saying exactly the same thing. You're just adding up the assets and saying this is good enough, but the person is totally, thoroughly deceived, just like the Apostle Paul was. But let me go on. I need to get a hurry here to get this last one in. Paul puts all this on the plus side, but he has one more, and that is fanaticism. Now, that's what we call devotion on steroids, fanaticism. Notice verse number 6. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, Paul didn't stop in his religion with just repeating the words and putting a holy, pious look on his face. His religion was more than that. His religion was one of action. He had zeal. He had fanaticism. And that led him to be a, just a thorough persecutor of God's people. Anybody who follows the way of Christ, Paul's going after them. And in that way, Paul wasn't any different than a Shiite fundamentalist. I mean, death to all infidels. That's what Paul believed. 
And you think, well, how, how could he do that? I mean, how could his zeal lead him to do that? Well, his zeal is for what to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And if God hates everything that's opposed to his way, then the best thing for me to do is to be an enforcer of God's way. And so what did he do? He went and asked for special permission from the priest and from the Sanhedrin. Give me letters so I can go and find all the Christians that I can find, bring them back, and we'll be able to put those people to death. No, godly Stephen, that righteous deacon who was a preacher of the gospel, he was the one who actually lit the flame of Paul's hatred towards Christians. Paul was standing there watching Stephen stoned, and he thought that that was his job, that he needed to go and do the same to all Christians. Let them end up the same way that Stephen did. That was his zeal. It's his fanaticism for his religion. Of course, he's misguided. But, but he's sincere about what he's doing. It's fanaticism. That leads him on a killing quest. And so even in this, Paul stands out among all the Jews. They're just persecutors. He's a killer. He's going to go find them wherever they are. And that's the same kind of fanaticism that caused Roman Catholics to think that they were the enforcers of God and why they ended up killing millions of Baptist people during the Dark Ages. So when you add all of this up, Paul has this long list of assets, and he thinks this is the sure guarantee of paradise. I'm going to get into heaven because I have all of these things. But what he found out, every one of them was worse than a vain hope. He was uh, deceived by the prophet side of his P&L statement. All of those things were no good to him. Uh, Everything that he counted as gain, he ends up saying these are losses. And we'll come back to this in a couple of weeks and we'll talk about how Paul has to shift everything over. He he rearranges and goes into some new accounting on his balance sheet or on his P&L statement. He has to change things around because all the things that he thought were gains ended up to be losses. And so he has to have something on the other side of the ledger that will balance all of that out. Everything in his life is lost. The very best that he could offer from his heritage, from his own efforts, at the very best, all of it is lost. So what's he going to do in order to get into heaven? What thing is there that he can do to balance out all of those things that have now become losses? Well, we'll talk about that, and we'll see how Paul shifts the accounting and comes up with new accounting. And that's what made him a person who is a believer in Jesus Christ and one who is on his way to heaven. It's a big difference about how your P&L looks as a Christian. The way it ought to look is not the way that Paul started out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time of being together tonight. And Lord, uh, I just uh, help, uh, ask you to help us all to realize that there's nothing good that we can do. There is no righteousness that we can count on. The only thing that we can look to is to Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross of Calvary. I pray, Lord, that every person in this room tonight has discovered that faith in Jesus Christ is the only way that any person will ever get into heaven. Bless in our invitation tonight, Lord, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.